Hi, welcome to another episode of Talking Bed with Jen, and today we're talking about Jackie Robinson. So, today we're using a a slightly different microphone because I have no idea where my, uh, I usually use Apple headphones to record this, even though I, I don't use iOS, I have an Android, but, um... I have no idea where those headphones are. (laughs) They're completely gone. And so I'm actually using this microphone that I bought maybe like two months ago because I thought maybe the sound would be better. I actually don't think the sound is better. I think the sound is tinny, but I don't have anything else. I could probably just literally speak into my phone, but at least with the mic, I can hold it in front of my mouth. (laughs) Uh, so that you can get all that fantastic mouth noise that people love. Um, look, I, you know, if you're listening to this in the future, this is November 4th of 2020, and we are still awaiting the results of the presidential election between Joe Biden and Trump. And it's a little tense, and everybody feels a little anxious, so uh, I wanted to record today just to have something um, else going on. And um, in the previous episode, I read the Wikipedia page, almost in its entirety, of, uh, oh gosh, George Washington Carver. And really, I was interested in doing that because I was curious um, if he had really invented peanut butter. And I came to find out that he really hadn't. Uh, and it just made me kind of think about other, um, other African-American men, uh, who are kind of like these legendary figures in American history. And my mind went to Jackie Robinson and I always grew up with the understanding that Jackie Robinson broke the color line in baseball, but I ha- I feel like I've heard kind of things around that there were actually black players before him, so I'm a little bit, um, that's kind of what I'm looking into today. So uh, this is going to be a reading of Jackie Robinson's Wikipedia page, and um I'll kind of make commentary where it seems like it's necessary. I am, I think, obviously going to have to say not the N-word. Of course, I would never say that. Negro. I don't really know if it's okay for me to say that word. I don't feel comfortable saying that word. But, you know... Uh, for a long time, that was the word that you used, that people used. And um, so there are official names of things that have that word in it. And I mean, quite frankly, I don't feel comfortable using the phrase colored people, even obviously not like in like present day, but also when it comes to just historical references, I don't feel comfortable saying those words. However, those are sometimes the names of things, the National uh, 
Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP. I mean, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I'm sorry, not that it doesn't make sense to me. I just, it's difficult as a, you know, as a white person in this day and age to, um, not say something insensitive, which would truly be the only issue is that I would hate to say something that would upset people based on an issue of race. So with that out of the way, (laughs) that being, I don't really feel that comfortable saying these things, but I will read them if it's an official name of something. (laughs) So, um, let's get started on learning about Jackie Robinson. Jack Roosevelt Robinson was born on January 31st in 1919 in Cairo, Georgia. Uh, he died on October 24th in 1972 in Stamford, Connecticut, and he was only 53 when he died, which is very young. He was an American professional baseball player who became the first African-American to play in Major League Baseball in the modern era. Robinson broke the baseball color line when he started at first base for the Brooklyn Dodgers on April 15, 1947. So right away, we've answered my question. Did Jackie Robinson break the color line? Yes. They specifically say he was the first to play in the major leagues, um, first African-American to play in the major leagues. I am wondering if I've heard things about African-American men who played in minor league, uh, minor leagues. I wonder if they'll mention that in this. I don't know. Now, what's funny is that when I read about George Washington Carver, it was all the way at the end, the bit about peanut butter. And here we've sort of, we're getting right to that. So, when the Dodgers signed Robinson, they heralded the end of racial segregation in professional baseball that had relegated black players to the Negro Leagues since the 1880s. Robinson was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1962. Man, 10 years before he died, 43 years old. Wow. <laughs> I can do simple math in case you were <laughs> wondering. During his 10-year MLB career, for anybody who's not American, MLB is the acronym for Major League Baseball. Robinson was the inaugural Rookie of the Year in 1947, was an all-star for six consecutive seasons from 1949 through 1954, and won the National League Most Valuable Player Award in 1949, the first black player so honored. Robinson played in six World Series and contributed to the Dodgers' 1955 uh, World Series championship. In 1997, MLB retired his uniform number 42 across all major league teams. He was the first professional athlete in any sport to be so honored. 
MLB also adopted a new annual tradition, Jackie Robinson Day, for the first time on April 15, 2004, on which every player on every team wears number 42. How great! I am always looking for something nice to celebrate, and um, that's a really nice thing to celebrate. <laughs> Robinson's career... His use of nonviolence and his talent challenged the traditional basis of segregation that had then marked many other aspects of American life. He influenced the culture of and contributed significantly to the civil rights movement. Robinson also was the first black television analyst in MLB and the first black vice president of a major American corporation chock full of nuts, which is a coffee company. In the 1960s, he helped establish the Freedom National Bank, an African-American-owned financial institution based in Harlem, New York. After his death in 1972, Robinson was posthumously awarded the Congressional Gold Medal and Presidential Medal of Freedom in recognition of his achievements on and off the field. So I really think that that's very um, important to read because it immediately brings to mind Colin Kaepernick. And, um, you know, even Jackie Robinson, like, he could have said, you know, I'm the first... Uh, black player. I don't want to like ruffle too many feathers. I, I don't want, um, the white, um, fans to be upset by my involvement in the civil rights movement. He really had a lot, um, riding on his like position and, um, he chose to go ahead and, stand up for what he believed in. Okay, so let's get into his early life. Family and personal life. Jack Roosevelt Robinson. Well, we we don't need to get into that again. Um, it's just about when and where he was born. Um, it does say that his family were sharecroppers. He was the youngest of five children born to Mally... Um, Nay McGriff and Jerry Robinson after siblings Edgar Frank Matthew, nicknamed Mac, and Willa May. His middle name was in honor of former President Theodore Roosevelt, who died 24, 25 days before Robinson was born. After Robinson's family left the family in 1920, they moved to Pasadena, California. The extended Robinson family established itself on a residential plot containing two small houses at 121 Pepper Street in Pasadena. Robinson's mother worked various odd jobs to support the family. Growing up in relative poverty in an otherwise affluent community, Robinson and his minority friends were excluded from many recreational opportunities. As a result, Robinson joined a neighborhood gang, but his friend Carl Anderson persuaded him to abandon it. Wow. That's quite a 
quite a life there so far. Um, John Muir, Muir, M-U-I-R, Muir High School. In 1935, Robinson graduated from Washington Junior High School and enrolled at John Muir High School, now known as Muir Tech. Uh, recognizing his athletic talents, Robinson's older brothers, Mac, himself an accomplished athlete and silver medalist, whoa, at the 1936 Summer Olympics. Okay. And Jack, uh, uh, sorry, um, <laughs> got myself all flustered. Um, so Mac and Frank inspired Jackie to pursue his interest in sports. At Muir Tech, Muir Tech, Robinson played several sports at the varsity level and lettered in four of them, football, basketball, track, and baseball. He played shortstop and catcher on the baseball team, quarterback on the football team, and guard on the basketball team. With the track and field squad, he won awards in the broad jump. He was also a member of the tennis team. My goodness, this kid was running around all over place. Jeez. In 1936, Robinson won the Junior Boys Singles Championship in the annual Pacific Coast Negro Tennis Tournament and earned a place on the Pomona Annual Baseball Tournament All-Star Team, which included future Hall of Famers Ted Williams and Bob Lemon. In late January 1937, the Pasadena Star News newspaper reported that Robinson, for two years, has been the outstanding athlete at Muir, starring in football, baseball, track, baseball, and tennis. My goodness. Pasadena Junior College. After Muir, Robinson attended Pasadena Junior College, PJC, where he continued his athletic career by participating in basketball, football, baseball, and track. On the football, how did he even... Wow. I mean, I guess some of them. Baseball is summer. Football is like fall and winter. Track is spring. Basketball doesn't really have a season, does it? I don't know. On the football team, he played quarterback and safety. He was a shortstop and leadoff hitter for the baseball team, and he broke school broad jump records held by his brother Mac. As at Muir High School, most of Jackie's teammates were white. While playing football at PJC, Robinson suffered a fractured ankle, complications from which would eventually delay his deployment status while in the military. In 1938, he was elected to the All-Southland Junior College team for baseball and selected as the region's most valuable player. That year, Robinson was one of 10 students named to the school's Order of the Mast and Dagger, Omicron Mu Delta, awarded to students performing outstanding service to the school and whose scholastic and citizenship record is worthy of recognition. Also, while at PJC, he was elected to the Lancers, a student-run police organization responsible for patrolling various school activities. Wow. An incident at PJC illustrated Robinson's impatience with authority figures he perceived as racist, a character trait that would resurface repeatedly in his life. On January 25, 1938, he was arrested after vocally disputing the detention of a black friend by police. If anyone ever tells you that the Black Lives Matter protests 
kicked up over one incident just remind you can point them directly to this sentence referencing something in 1938 and tell them it's been happening Robinson received a two-year suspended sentence, but the incident, along with other rumored run-ins between Robinson and police, gave Robinson a reputation for combativeness in the face of racial antagonism. <laughs> what a... How, you know... How are you supposed to behave <laughs> in the face of racial antagonism? While at PJC, he was motivated by a preacher, the Reverend Carl Downs, to attend church on a regular basis, and Downs became a confidant for Robinson, a Christian. Toward the end of his PJC tenure, Frank Robinson, to, uh, which is his brother, to whom Robinson felt closest among his three brothers, oh, was killed in a motorcycle accident. Oh, that's so sad. The event motivated Jackie to pursue his athletic career at the nearby University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA, where he could remain closer to Frank's family. That is so nice. UCLA and afterward. After graduating from PJC in spring 1939, Robinson enrolled at UCLA, where he became the school's first athlete to win varsity letters in four sports, baseball, basketball, football, and track. He was one of four black players on the Bruins 1939 football team. Like the Bruins? Like the like the at the NFL football team? That's crazy. Okay. The others were Woody Strode, Kenny Washington, and Ray Bartlett. Washington, Strode, and Robinson made up three of the team's four backfield players at a time when only a few black player uh, sorry black students played mainstream college football this made UCLA college football's most integrated team they went undefeated with four ties at 604 i okay so that must be six wins zero losses and four ties right i'm <laughs> i feel like the biggest challenge in reading this is that i don't know that much about sports but i feel like i'm gonna learn a lot about sports history right now in track and field robinson won the 1940 uh ncaa championship in the long jump do you need the measurements at 24 feet and 10 and a quarter inches? Belying his future career, baseball was Robinson's worst sport at UCLA. He hit .097 in his only season. Although I'm not laughing at the number I'm laughing at. I don't know if you read it as .097. I'm not really sure how to read it, nor do I know what it means. So, although in his first game, he went four for four and twice stole home. I know what that means. 
While a senior at UCLA, Robinson met his future wife, Rachel Ism, born in 1922, a UCLA freshman who was familiar with Robin's athletic career at PJC. He played football as a senior, but the 1940s Bruins won only one game. In the spring, Robinson left college just shy of graduation despite the reservations of his mother and Ism. He took a job as an assistant athletic director with the government's National Youth Administration in Atascadero, California. Atascadero, California. After the government ceased NYA production, productions, oh my god, NYA operations, that is National Youth Administration operations, Robinson traveled to Honolulu in the fall of 1941 to play football for the semi-professional racially integrated Honolulu Bears. After a short season, Robinson returned to California in December of 1941 to pursue a career as running back for the Los Angeles Bulldogs of the Pacific Coast Football League. By that time, however, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor had taken place, which drew the United States into World War II and ended Robinson's national football career. Wow, so we could have been having a very different conversation about Jackie Robinson. Military career. In 1942, Robinson was drafted and assigned to a segregated Army Cavalry Union unit in Fort Riley, Kansas. Having the requisite qualifications, Robinson and several other black soldiers applied for admission to an officer candidate school, OCS, then located at Fort Riley. Although the Army's initial July 1941 guidelines for OCS had been drafted as race-neutral, few black applicants were admitted into OCS until after subsequent directives by Army leadership. As a result, the applications of Robinson and his colleagues were delayed for several months. After protests by heavyweight boxing champion Joe Lewis, then stationed at Fort Riley, and the help of Truman Gibson, then an assistant civilian aide to the security of war, the men were accepted into OCS. Uh, again, I don't really n officer candidate school, so I guess they just wanted to m move up in the ranks, I, su I suspect. The experience led to a personal friendship between Robinson and Lewis. Upon finishing OCS, Robinson was commissioned as a second lieutenant in January 1943. Shortly afterward, Robinson and Ism were formally engaged. After receiving his commission, Robinson was reassigned to Fort Hood, Texas, where he joined the 761st Black Panthers Tank, Tank Battalion. While at Fort Hood, Robinson often used his weekend leave to visit the Reverend Carl Downs, president of Sam Houston College, now Houston Tillotson University, in nearby Austin, Texas. Downs had been Robinson's pastor at Scott United Methodist Church while Robinson attended PJC. An event on July 6, 1944 derailed Robinson's military career. While awaiting results of hospital tests on the ankle he had injured in junior college, Robinson boarded an army bus with a fellow officer's wife. 
Although the army had commissioned its own unsegregated bus line, the bus driver ordered Robinson to move to the back of the bus. Robinson refused. The driver backed down, but after reaching the end of the line, summoned the military police who took Robinson into custody. When Robinson later confronted the investigating duty officer about racist questioning by the officer and his assistant, the officer recommended Robinson be court-martialed. Now, this is a really good example of, um, you know, when people make some sort of a very biased argument that if um, people just did what the police said, there wouldn't be an issue. Sometimes you're being asked to do something that you shouldn't have to do, you know, I'm just saying. <laughs> After Robinson's commander in the 761st, Paul L. Bates, refused to authorize the legal action, Robinson was summarily transferred to the 758th Battalion, where the commander quickly consented to charge Robinson with multiple offenses, including, among other charges, public drunkenness, even though Robinson did not drink. By the time of the court-martial in August 1944, the charges against Robinson had been reduced to two counts of insubordination during questioning. Robinson was acquitted by an all-white panel of nine officers. Although his former unit, the 761st Tank Battalion, became the first black tank unit to see combat in World War II, Robinson's court-martial proceedings prohibited him from being deployed overseas, Thus, he never saw combat action. It seems so crazy that World War II is going on. You have a man who's like in peak physical condition. He is like an athlete and a doer and like gets involved wherever he can. And you've got him stuck in the U.S., because he didn't want to, I mean, is that not crazy? That is really wild. <laughs> okay. After his acquittal, he was transferred to Camp Breckenridge in Kentucky, where he served as a coach for Army Athletics until receiving an honorable discharge in November 1944. While there, Robinson met a former player for the Kansas City Monarchs of the Negro American League, who encouraged Robinson to write the Monarchs and ask for a tryout. Robinson took the former player's advice and wrote to Monarchs co-owner Thomas Baird. Post-Military After his discharge, Robinson briefly returned to his old football club, the Los Angeles Bulldogs. Robinson then accepted an offer from his friend and pastor, Reverend Carl Downs, to be the athletic director at Samuel uh, Houston College in Austin, then of the Southwestern Athletic Conference. The job included coaching the school's basketball team for the 1944-1945 season. As it was a fledgling program, few students tried out for the basketball team, and Robinson even resorted to inserting himself into the lineup for exhibition games. 
Although his teams were outmatched by opponents, Robinson was respected as a disciplinarian coach and drew the admiration of, among others, Langston University basketball player Marquez Haynes, a future member of the Harlem Globetrotters, who used to come to my high school and try and sell tickets, <laughs> which was always, like, really funny. Just because, I don't know. <laughs> what a funny thing to come to a, to drive upstate in New York and sell tickets to, for kids to go see the Harlem Globetrotters. Just a funny idea. Playing career. Negro leagues and major league prospects. In early 1945, while Robinson was at Sam Houston College, the Kansas City Monarchs uh, sent him a written offer to play professional baseball in the Negro Leagues. I feel like I'm going to have to say that word a lot, and I don't feel great saying it, just just to remind you. <laughs> Robinson accepted a contract for $400 per month. Although he played well for the Monarchs, Robinson was frustrated with the experience. He had grown used to a structured playing environment in college, and the Negro League's disorganization and embrace of gambling interests appalled him. The hectic travel schedule also placed a burden on his relationship with Ism, with whom he could now communicate only by letter. Boy, times have really changed. It's hard to imagine that and as somebody who is an expat I have to tell you that being an expat nowadays is very easy all things considered in all Robinson played 47 games as shortstop for the Monarchs hitting .387 with 5 home runs and registering 13 stolen bases I didn't know that stealing bases was such a, like, a significant thing. I didn't know they were kind of keeping track of that. I thought it was just, like, a thing that you did. I didn't know that was, like, a some kind of a marker as to how good of a player you are. So that's interesting. He also appeared in the 1945 East-West All-Star Game going hitless in five at-bats. During the season, Robinson pursued potential major league interests. No black man had played in the major leagues since Moses Fleetwood Walker in 1884. So, now that's interesting. I feel like we're going to have to do a dive on to Moses Fleetwood Walker because... What's his story? So there was a black man who played in the major leagues. It was, you know, in the 19th century, but let's see. But the Boston Red Sox nevertheless held a tryout at Fenway Park for Robinson and other black players on April 16th. We don't have a year for that. Or... So I think we're in 45, roughly. The tryout, however, was a farce chiefly designed to assuage the desegregationist sensibilities of powerful Boston City Councilman Isidore H.Y. Muchnick. 
Even with the stands limited to management, Robinson was subjected to racial epithets. He left the tryout humiliated, and more than 14 years later, in July 1959, the Red Sox became the last major league team to integrate its roster. Which is appalling. Um, other teams, however, had more serious interest in signing a black ball player. In the mid-1940s, Branch Rickey, club president and general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers, began to scout the Negro Leagues for a possible addition to the Dodgers roster. Rickey selected Robinson from a list of promising black players and interviewed him for possible assignment to Brooklyn's International League Farm Club, the Montreal Royals. I'm saying Royale. It could just be Royals. But they're from Montreal, so maybe it's Royale. Ricky was especially interested in making sure his eventual signee could withstand the inevitable racial abuse that would be directed at him. In a famous three-hour exchange on August 28, 1945, Ricky asked Robinson if he could face the racial animus without taking the bait and reacting angrily, a concern given Robinson's prior arguments with law enforcement officials at PJC and in the military. Robinson was aghast. Are you looking for a Negro who is afraid to fight back? Ricky replied that he needed a Negro player with guts enough not to fight back. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, I don't know how I feel about that statement, but okay. After obtaining a commitment from Robinson to turn the other cheek to racial antagonism, Ricky agreed to sign him to a contract for $600 a month. Uh equal to $8,521 today. Ricky did not offer compensation to the Monarchs, instead believing all Negro players were free agents due to the contracts not containing a reserve clause. Among those Ricky discussed prospects with was Wendell Smith, writer for the Black Weekly Pittsburgh Courier, who, according to Cleveland Indians owner and team president Bill Veek, influenced Ricky to take Jack Robinson, for which he's never completely gotten credit. Although he required Robinson to keep the arrangement a secret for the time being, Ricky committed to formally signing Robinson before November 1st, 1945. On October 23rd, it was publicly announced that Robinson would be assigned to the Royals, for the 1946 season. On the same day, with representatives of the Royals and Dodgers present, Robinson formally signed his contract with the Royals. In what was later referred to as the Noble Experiment, Robinson was the first black player in the International League since the 1880s. Okay. I'm still thinking about that other man. I'm not sure how to make sense of that. Maybe we'll get to that later. We might have to do a off Wikipedia a little bit of research. He was not necessarily the best player 
in the Negro Leagues, and black talents Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson were upset when Robinson was selected first. Larry Doby, who broke the color line in the American League the same year as Robinson, said, One of the things that was disappointing and disheartening to a lot of the black players at the time was that Jack was not the best player. The best was Josh Gibson. I think that's one of the reasons why Josh died so early. He was heartbroken. Oh my gosh, that's quite a... Wow. All right, now now we have another name popping up. Larry Doby uh, broke the color line in the American League. And uh, Moses Fleetwood Walker was the other player who had already played in the major leagues. So I'm really... I'm having trouble making sense of that. How can there already have been black players who even, it says, broke color lines? I guess that we're saying, let's go back up to the top. Uh, color line. Robinson broke the baseball color line when he started at first base for the Brooklyn Dodgers on April 15th, 1947. I feel like I have lost uh, the plot here somewhere. I have to I have to look at this again for a second. I know that we'll probably get it settled. Now, the, here's the issue with some Wikipedia articles is that it's not necessarily sometimes they'll repeat information that's already been written. Let's just keep going. Let's try and get through this. What, what is this that we're looking at? Negro leagues and major league prospects. Okay, so could it be that the this was the International League. He signed with Brooklyn's International League Farm Club, the Montreal Royals. Okay. It's not Major League Baseball. Let's say that, okay? So, Ricky's offer allowed Robinson to leave behind the Monarchs and their grueling bus rides, and he went home to Pasadena. That September, he signed with Chet Brewster's Kansas City Royals a post-season barnstorming team in the California Winter League. There's a lot of different leagues at this time, apparently. Who knew? Later that off-season, he briefly toured South America with another barnstorming team, while his fiancée-ism pursued nursing opportunities in New York City. I don't think these two ever see each other. (laughs) On February 10th, 1946, Robinson and Ism were married by their old friend, the Reverend Carl Downs. That is so nice. Minor Leagues In 1946, Robinson arrived at Daytona Beach, Florida for spring training with the Montreal Royals of the Class AAA International League. Clay Hopper, the manager of the Royals, asked Ricky to assign Robinson to any other Dodger affiliate but Ricky refused. Robinson's presence was controversial in racially charged Florida. He was not allowed to stay with his white team members at the hotel. 
at the team hotel and instead lodged at the home of Joe and Dufferin Harris. Dufferin, okay? A politically active African-American couple who introduced the Robinsons to civil rights activists. Oh, Mary McLeod Bethune. I had to do a project on her in like the third grade. I'll never forget her name. Since the Dodgers organization did not own a spring training facility, scheduling was subject to the whim of area localities, several of which turned down any event involving Robinson or Johnny Wright, another black player whom Ricky had signed to the Dodgers organization in January. In Sanford, Florida, uh, the police chief threatened to cancel games if Robinson and Wright did not cease training activities there. As a result, Robinson was sent back to Daytona Beach. In Jacksonville, the stadium was padlocked shut without warning on game day by order of the city's parks and public property director. In DeLand, a scheduled day game was postponed ostensibly because of issues with the stadium's electrical lighting. After much lobbying of local officials by Ricky himself, the Royals were allowed to host a game involving Robinson in Daytona Beach. Robinson made his Royals debut at Daytona Beach's City Island Ballpark on March 17, 1946, in an exhibition game against the team's parent club, the Dodgers. Robinson thus became the first black player to openly play for a minor league team against a major league team since the de facto baseball color line had been implemented in the 1880s. I think that in order to kind of solve some of this, we would have to, I would have to really kind of dig into the history of the color line itself. Later in spring training, after some less than stellar performances, Robinson was shifted from shortstop to second base, allowing him to make shorter throws to first base. Robinson's perform performance soon rebounded. On April 18, 1946, Roosevelt Stadium hosted the Jersey City Giants season opener against the Montreal Royals, marking the professional debut of the Royals' Jackie Robinson and the first time the color barrier had been broken in a game between two minor league clubs. Okay. Pitching against Robinson was Warren Sandal, who had played against him when they both lived in California. During Robinson's first at-bat, the Jersey City catcher Dick B-O-U-K-N-I-G-H-T, so B-O-U and then the word night, book night? Demanded that Sandal throw at Robinson, but Sandal refused, although Sandal induced Robinson to ground out at his first at-bat. Robinson ended up with four hits in his five trips to the plate. His first hit was a three-run home run in the game's third inning. He also scored four runs, drove in three, and stole two bases in the Royals' 14-1 victory. Robinson proceeded to lead the International League that season with a .349 batting average and .985 fielding percentage, and he was named the league's most valuable player. Although he often faced hostility while on road trips, the Royals were forced to uh, cancel a Southern Exhibition tour, for example. 
The Montreal fan base enthusiastically supported Robinson. Whether fans supported or opposed it, Robinson's presence on the field was a boon to attendance. More than one million people went to games involving Robinson in 1946, an amazing figure by international league standards. In the fall of 1946, following the baseball season, Robinson returned home to California and briefly played professional basketball for the short-lived Los Angeles Red Devils. Major Leagues Breaking the Color Barrier, 1947 Here we go. I hope we get some questions (laughs) answered. In 1947, the Dodgers called Robinson up to the major leagues six days before the start of the season. With Eddie Stanky entrenched at second base for the Dodgers, Robinson played his initial major league season as a first baseman. On April 15th, Robinson made his major league debut at the relatively advanced age of 28 at Ebbets Field before a crowd of 26,623 spectators, more than 14,000 of whom were black. Although he failed to get a base hit, he walked and scored a run in the Dodgers' 5-3 victory. Robinson became the first player since 1884 to openly break the Major League Baseball color line. Black fans began flocking to see the Dodgers when they came to town, abandoning their Negro League teams. So, I... Hmm... I feel like I'm coming to the conclusion to say that um, it's not totally accurate to say that Robinson broke the color line, as in he was the first black man to play uh, baseball with a white team. That's not quite true, and I would guess you you could make the argument that the people who would have been going to see him in 1947 may not have really been aware of um oh it was three names Moses Walker that's all i can remember the, you know i mean i'm not that good at math <laughs> i'm not sure I guess somebody who was born in 1884 like definitely could have been alive in 1947. Is that the dumbest thing that I've ever said? I have to I I do have to check that out. 1947 minus 1884. Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, so you would have been 63 in 1947. So ostensibly you could have already like known about that, but it was in the 19th century, for goodness sake, you know. Um, I, so I, I wonder if there's a little bit of, like, a misremembering going on, or it just feels like this is creating more questions for me than it is answering, it is sort of answering things But then there's questions that are following. Okay. Robinson's promotion met a generally positive, although mixed, reception among newspapers and white major league players. However, racial tension existed in the Dodger clubhouse. Some Dodger players insinuated they would 
sit out rather than play alongside Robinson. The brewing mutiny ended when Dodgers management took a stand for Robinson. Manager Leo Durocker informed the team, I do not care if the guy is yellow or black or if he has stripes like a fucking zebra. I'm the manager of this team and I say he plays. What's more, I say he can make us all rich. And if any of you cannot use the money, I will see that you are all traded. <laughs> what upstanding words. <laughs> Uh, Robinson was also derided by opposing teams. According to a press report, the St. Louis Cardinals threatened to strike if Robinson played and to spread the walkout across the entire National League. Existence of the plot was said to have been leaked by the Cardinals' team physician, Robert Hyland, to a friend, the New York Herald Tribune's Rutherford Rudd Rennie. What the fuck kind of a name is that? The reporter, concerned about protecting Highland's anonymity and job, in turn leaked it to his Tribune <clears throat> colleague and editor, Stanley Woodward, whose own subsequent reporting with other sources protected Highland. The Woodward article made... Oh my god, isn't that so funny? Because there's Bob Woodward. Oh, that's really funny. The Woodward article made national headlines. It sure did. <laughs> As true a statement then as it is today. After it was published, National League President Ford Frick and Baseball Con Commissioner Happy Chandler. What are these names? Ford Frick? Rutherford Rudd? Rudd oh, my God. <sighs> Let it be known that any striking players would be suspended. You will find that the friends that you think you have in the press box will not support you. That you will be outclassed, Frick was quoted as saying. I do not care if half the league strikes. Those who do it will encounter quick retribution. All will be suspended. And I don't care if it wrecks the National League for five years. This is the United States of America. And one citizen has as much right to play as another. God damn it. I added that. Woodward's article received the E.P. Dutton Award in 1947 for Best Sports Reporting. The Cardinals players denied that they were planning to strike, and Woodward later told author Roger Kahn that Frick was his true source. Writer Warren Corbett said that Frick's speech never happened. Regardless, the report led to Robinson receiving increased support from sports media. Even the Sporting News, a publication that had backed the color line, came out against the idea of a strike. Robinson nevertheless became the target of rough physical play by opponents, particularly the Cardinals. At one time, he received a seven-inch gash in his leg from Eno Slaughter. I mean, of course this guy's last name was Slaughter. Oh my god. On April 22nd, 1947, what is that, like, like a week after he broke the color line? Just FYI. During a game between the Dodgers and the Philadelphia Phillies, Phillies players and manager Ben Chapman called Robinson the N-word. They have it written here, I'm obviously not saying that word, from their dugout and yelled that he should... I, I really don't want to read that. It's in reference to labor that enslaved people in America had to do. Ricky later recalled that Chapman did more than anybody to unite the Dodgers when he poured out that string of unconscionable abuse. He solidified and united 30 men. 
Robinson did, however, receive significant encouragement from several major league players. Robinson named Lee G. Panley, who played for the Phillies at the time, as the first opposing player to wish him well. Dodgers teammate Pee Wee Reese once came to Robinson's defense with the famous line, you can hate a man for many reasons. Color is not one of them. (laughs) I don't know why that line is making me laugh so much. I just feel like in light of everything lately, I don't know. In, <laughs> I don't know why. Oh my God, maybe I'm tired. In 1947 or 1948, Reese is said to have put his arm around Robinson in response to fans who shouted racial slurs at Robinson before a game in Boston or Cincinnati. Very unclear statements here. We don't know the year. Or the place that it happened, I'm kind of questioning if it happened at all. <laughs> a statue by sculptor William Barons unveiled at Key Span Park on November 1st, 2005, depicts Reese with his arm around Robinson. Well, that's very nice. I wish that we had, like, more uh, confirmed details on this thing that a statue was made after. Okay. Jewish baseball player Hank Greenberg. Greenberg, who had to deal with ethnic epithets during his career, also encouraged Robinson. Following an incident where Greenberg collided with Robinson at first base, he whispered a few words into Robinson's ear, which Robinson later characterized as words of encouragement. Greenberg had advised him to overcome his critics by defeating them in games. Robinson also frequently talked with Larry Doby, who endured his own hardship since becoming the first black player in the American League with the Cleveland Indians as the two spoke to one another via telephone throughout the season. All right, so Larry Doby was the other name that came up where I, I was a little bit thrown off by that. Um, so I'm thinking that the issue here, it's an issue of different leagues. And Jackie Robinson specifically broke the color line for the major leagues. Now we do, we are going to do a little follow-up on Moses Walker, because I got to get that clarified. Because they even say it, that he played in the major leagues. So we have to clarify that. But now at least we know Larry Doby did also break the color line for the American League. Robinson finished the season having played in 151 games for the Dodgers with a batting average of .297, an on-base average of .383, and a .427 slugging percentage. Ooh, I like that, slugging percentage. He had 175 hits, scoring 125 runs, including 31 doubles, 5 triples, and 12 home runs, driving in 48 runs for the year. Robinson led the league in sacrifice hits, I have no idea what that means, with 28, and in stolen bases with 29. His cumulative performance earned him the inaugural Major League Baseball Rookie of the Year Award. Separate National and American League Rookie of the Year honors were not awarded until 1949. Just a little info. MVP, Congressional Testimony and Film Biography, 1948-1950. to 1950. 
Following Stinky's trade to the Boston Braves in March 1948, Robinson took over second base, where he logged a .980 fielding percentage that year, second in the National League at the position, fractionally behind Stanky. Robinson had a batting average of .296 and 22 stolen bases for the season in a 12-7 win against the St. Louis Cardinals on August 29, 1948. He fit, He hit for the cycle... A home run, a triple, a double, and a single in the same game. Hit for the cycle, okay. New lingo for me. The Dodgers briefly moved into first place in the National League in late August 1948, but they ultimately finished third as the Braves went on to win the league title and lose to the Cleveland Indians in the World Series. Racial pressure on Robinson eased in 1948 when a number of other black players entered the major leagues. Larry Dilby, who broke the color line in the American League on July 5th, 1947, just 11 weeks after Robinson, finally. Okay. I feel fine with that. Now we have an answer. And Satchel Page. I've definitely heard the name Satchel Page. Uh, played for the Cleveland Indians, and the Dodgers had three other black players besides Robinson. In February 1948, he signed a $12,500 contract equal to $133,000 today with the Dodgers, while a significant amount, this was less than Robinson made in the offseason from a vaudeville tour where he answered preset baseball questions in a speaking tour of the South. Between the tours, he underwent surgery on his right ankle. Because of his off-season activities, Robinson reported to training camp oh, 30 pounds overweight. He lost the weight during training camp, but dieting left him weak at the plate. In 1948, Wendell's, Wendell Smith's book, Jackie Robinson, My Own Story, was released. So they really, I mean, very quickly, this obviously made a huge was a hugely significant thing and just like in the following year after he broke the color line he he had a book written about him in the spring of 1949 two years after he joined the Dodgers Robinson turned to Hall of Famer George Sisler working as an advisor to the Dodgers for batting help at Sisler at I keep wanting to say sister at Sisler's suggestion <laughs> Robinson spent hours at a batting tee learning to hit the ball to right field. Sisler taught Robinson to anticipate a fastball on the theory that it is easier to subsequently adjust to a slower curveball. Robinson also noticed that Sisler showed me how to stop lunging, how to check my swing into the last fraction of a second. The tutelage helped Robinson raise his batting average from .296 in 1948 to .342 in 1949. In addition to his improved batting average, Robinson stole 37 bases that season, was second place in the league for both doubles and triples, and registered 124 runs batted in with 122 runs scored. For the performance, Robinson earned the Most Valuable Player Award for the National League. Baseball fans also voted Robinson as the starting second baseman for the 1949 All-Star Game, the first All-Star Game to include black players. 
that year. A song about Robinson by Buddy Johnson, Did You See Jackie Robinson Hit That Ball, reached number 13 on the charts. Count Basie recorded a famous version. Ultimately, the Dodgers won the National League pennant, but lost in five games to the New York Yankees in the 1949 World Series. Summer 1949 brought an unwanted distraction for Robinson. In July, he was called to testify before the United States House of Representatives Committee of Un-American Activities, HUAC, H-U-A-C, concerning statements made that April by black athlete and actor Paul Robeson. Robinson was reluctant to testify, but he eventually agreed to do so, fearing it might negatively affect his career if he declined. In 1950, we don't have an outcome for what happened there, okay? <laughs> I guess we're moving on. In 1950, Robinson led the National League in double plays, made a second baseman, uh, made by a second baseman with 133. His salary that year was the highest any Dodger had been paid to that point, $35,000, I'm I'm rounding down a little bit. In uh, 2019 dollars, <laughs> he finished the year with 99 runs scored, a point, uh, .328 batting average, and 12 stolen bases. The year saw the release of a film biography of Robinson's life, The Jackie Robinson Story, in which Robinson played himself. Jesus, and actress Ruby D played Rachel Ray Ism Robinson. This is so crazy to me that, like, man, like, three years after his life completely changed. It's so crazy. The project had been previously delayed when the film's producers refused to accede to demands of two Hollywood studios that the movie include scenes of Robinson being tutored in baseball by a white man. Okay. <laughs> How weird. The New York Times wrote that Robinson, doing that rare thing of playing himself in the picture's leading role, displays a calm assurance and composure that might be envied by many a Hollywood star. I mean, so he's just kind of great at everything, is essentially what you're telling me. Except except that he had to work at baseball a little bit. Robinson's Hollywood exploits, however, did not sell well with uh, Dodgers co-owner Walter O'Malley, who referred to Robinson as Ricky's prima donna. In late 1950, Ricky's contract as the Dodgers team president expired, wary of constant disagreements with O'Malley and with no hope of being reappointed as president of the Dodgers. Ricky cashed out his one-quarter financial interest in the team, leaving O'Malley in full control of the franchise. Ricky shortly thereafter became general manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Robinson was disappointed at the turn of events and wrote a sympathetic letter to Ricky, whom he considered a father figure, stating, regardless of what happens to me in the future, it all can be placed on what you have done, and believe me, I appreciate it. Pennant Races and Outside Interests, 1951-1953 Before the 1951 season, O'Malley reportedly offered Robinson the job of manager of the Montreal Royals, effective at the end of Montreal's 
uh, sorry, Jesus, of Robinson's playing career. O'Malley was quoted in the Montreal Standard as saying, Jackie told me that he would be both delighted and honored to tackle this managerial post, although reports differed as to whether a position was ever formally offered. During the 1951 season, Robinson led the National League in double plays made by a second baseman for the second year in a row with 137. He also kept the Dodgers in contention for the 1951 pennant. During the last game of the regular season in the 13th inning, he had a hit to tie the game and then hit a home run in the 14th inning, which proved to be the winning margin. This forced a best-of-three playoff series against the crosstown rival New York Giants. Despite Robinson's regular season heroics, on October 3, 1951, the Dodgers lost the pennant on Bobby Thompson's famous home run, known as the shot heard round the world. Okay? Overcoming his dejection, Robinson dutifully observed Thompson's feet to ensure he touched all the bases. Dodgers sportscaster Vin Scully later noted that the incident showed how much of a competitor Robinson was. He finished the season with 106 runs scored, a batting average of .335, and 25 stolen bases. Robinson had what an average year... Robinson had what was an average year for him in 1952. He finished the game with 104 runs, a .308 batting average, and 24 stolen bases. He did, however, record a career-high on-base percentage of .436. The Dodgers improved their performance from the year before, winning the National League pennant before losing the 1952 World Series to, you guessed it, the the New York Yankees in seven games. That year on on the television show Youth Wants to Know, Robinson challenged the Yankees general manager, George Weiss, on the racial record of his team, which had yet to sign a black player. Sports writer Dick Young, who Robinson had described as a bigot, said, If there was one flaw in Jackie, it was the common one. He believed that everything unpleasant that happened to him happened because of his blackness. I don't have any comment. The 1952 season was the last year Robinson was an everyday starter at second base. However, Robinson played variously at first, second, and third bases, shortstop, and in the outfield with Jim Gilliam, another black player taking over everyday second base duties. Robinson's interests began to shift toward the prospect of managing a major league team. He had hoped to gain experience by managing in the Puerto Rican Winter League, but according to the New York Post, Commissioner Happy Chandler denied the request. In 1953, Robinson had 109 runs, a .329 batting average, and 17 steals, leading the Dodgers to another National League pennant and another World Series loss to the Yankees, this time in six games. Robinson's continued success spawned a string of death threats. He was not dissuaded, however from addressing racial issues publicly. I'm sorry. So just jumping back to that comment earlier, uh, are the death threats, should he not be taking those as something that's happening because of his blackness? Just, just curious, you know. I'm obviously being facetious, and the death threats were obviously because he was black. Uh, he was not dissuaded from talking about 
racial issues publicly. That year, he served as editor for Our Sports Magazine, a periodical focusing on Negro sports issues. Contributions to the magazine included an article on golf course segregation by Robinson's old friend Joe Lewis. Robinson also openly criticized segregated hotels and restaurants that served the Dodger organization. A number of these establishments integrated as a result, including the five-star Chase Park Hotel in St. Louis. World Championship and Retirement, 1954 to 1956. In 1954, Robinson had 62 runs, a .311 batting average, and seven steals. His best day at the plate was on June 17th, when he hit two home runs and two doubles. The following autumn, Robinson won his only championship when the Dodgers beat the New York Yankees, yeah, in the 1955 World Series. That is a pretty nice way to go out. (laughs) Although the team enjoyed ultimate success, 1955 was the worst year of Robinson's individual career. He hit uh, .256 and stole only 12 bases. The Dodgers tried Robinson in the outfield and as a third baseman, both because of his diminishing abilities and because Gilliam was established at second base. Robinson, then 36 years old, missed 49 games and did not play in Game 7 of the World Series. Robinson missed the game because manager Walter Alston decided to play Gilliam at second and Don Hoak at third base. That season, the Dodgers' Don Newcomb became the first black major league pitcher to win 20 games in a year. In 1956, Robinson had 61 runs scored, a .275 batting average, and 12 steals. By then, he had begun to exhibit the effects of diabetes, okay, and to lose interest in the prospect of playing or managing professional baseball. Robinson ended his major league career when he struck out to end Game 7 of the 1956 World Series. After the season, the Dodgers traded Robinson to the arch-rival New York Giants for Dick Littlefield and $35,000 cash, equal to $329,000 today. They don't cite what today is. Today is a constantly changing (laughs) concept. So, and we don't have a citation on that. I don't know. (laughs) The trade, however, was not completed. Unbeknownst to the Dodgers, Robinson had already agreed with the president of Chockful of Nuts, Chockful O Nuts, to quit baseball and become an executive with the company. Since Robinson had sold exclusive rights to any retirement story to Look Magazine two years previously, his retirement decision was revealed through the magazine instead of through the Dodgers organization, which is kind of crazy. Legacy. Robinson's major league debut brought an end to approximately 60 years of segregation in professional baseball known as the baseball color line. Okay. Okay. I feel that that, uh, that kind of addresses... Oh my God, guys. Okay, this really addresses the issue with Moses Walker. So what did I say earlier? Moses Walker played in 1884 for the major leagues. And in 1947, Jackie Robinson broke the color line. 
and I did the math, remember? And I said that in 1947, somebody, you know, it was a 63-year difference. So this is saying um, Robinson's major league debut brought an end to approximately 60 years of segregation. So I'm thinking that after Moses Walker played, you know, we don't know how long he played for. Um, I'm thinking that sometime after he played, they implemented a segregated segregated teams. Wow. That's very interesting. Okay, so I really feel like we've... I feel like I've got my answer now. I know where Moses Walker comes in. I know where... Oh, goodness. What was it? Larry? I can't remember his name now. Oh, isn't that terrible? What the heck was the guy's name? Larry Loeb? Of course... I mean, it's nowhere. I cannot find this man's name now. Larry Doby, Larry Doby, that was it. Larry Doby also broke the color line for the American League 11 weeks after Robinson broke the segregation color line. Okay, guys. After World War II, several other forces were also leading the country toward increased equality for blacks, including their accelerated migration to the north, where their political clout grew, and President Harry Truman's desegregation of the military in 1948. Robinson's breaking of the baseball color line and his professional success symbolized these broader changes and demonstrated that the fight for equality was more than simply a political matter. Martin Luther King Jr. It's going to be very hard for me to not cry. I am like fighting tears right now. Martin Luther King Jr. said that he was a legend and a symbol in his own time and that he challenged the dark skies of intolerance and frustration. According to historian Doris Kearns Goodwin, Robinson's efforts were a monumental step in the civil rights revolution in America. His accomplishments allowed black and white Americans to be more respectful and open to one another and more appreciative of everyone's abilities. Ooh, oh my gosh, that was tough to get through. I have to do a little, like, Lamaze breathing to kind of build up my (laughs) adrenaline. Beginning his major league career at the relatively advanced age of 28, he played only 10 seasons from 1947 to 1956, all of them for the Brooklyn Dodgers. During his career, the Dodgers played in six World Series, and Robinson himself played in six All-Star Games. In 1999, he was posthumously named to the Major League Baseball All-Century team. Robinson's career is generally considered to mark the beginning of the post quote unquote long ball era in baseball in which a reliance on raw power hitting gave way to balanced offensive strategies that used foot speed to create runs through aggressive base running. Robinson exhibited the combination of hitting ability and speed which exemplified the new era. He scored more than 100 runs in six of his 10 seasons, averaging more than 110 runs from 47 to 53. Had a .311 career batting average a .409 career on-base percentage, a 
0.474 slugging percentage and substantially more walks than strikeouts, uh, 740 to 291. Robinson was one of the only two players during the span of 1947 to 1956 to accumulate at least 125 steals while registering a slugging percentage over 0.425. Minnie Minoza was the other. He accumulated 197 stolen bases in total, including 19 steals of home. None of the latter were double steals, in which a player stealing home is assisted by a player stealing another base at the same time. Robinson has been referred to by author David Faulkner as the father of modern base stealing. Uh, Historical Statistical analysis indicates Robinson was an outstanding fielder throughout his 10 years in the major leagues and at virtually every position he played. After playing his rookie season at first base, Robinson spent most of his career as a second baseman. He led the league in fielding among second basemen in 1950 and 1951. Toward the end of his career, he played about 2,000 innings at third base and about 1,175 innings in the outfield, excelling at both. Assessing himself, Robinson said, I'm not concerned with your liking or disliking me. All I ask... (laughs) All I ask is that you respect me as a human being. I had to collect myself at the end there. (laughs) Regarding Robinson's qualities... On the field, Leo Durocker said, you want a guy that comes to play. Now I've just got like tears going on. (laughs) This guy didn't just come to play. He came to beat you. He come to stuff the goddamn bat right up your ass. That, okay. A lot of really colorful statements in this Wikipedia article. Uh, portrayals on stage, film, and television. Robinson portrayed himself in the 1950 motion picture, The Jackie Robinson Story. Other portrayals include John Lafayette in the 1978 ABC television special, A Home Run for Love, broadcast as an ABC after-school special. David Allen Greer in the 1981 Broadway production of the musical The First. Wow, okay. Uh, Michael David Gordon in the 1989 off-Broadway production of the musical Play to Win. Andre Brauger in the 1990 TNT television movie. Okay, wait. Oh. This is... I'm an idiot. Andre Brauger in the 1990 TNT television movie The Court Martial of Jackie Robinson. Blair Underwood in the uh, 1996 HBO television movie Soul of the Game, Antonio Todd in Colors, a 2005 episode of the CBS television series Cold Case, Chadwick Boseman, aw, poor Chadwick, in the 2013 motion picture 42. I, (laughs) because he had been in a movie about himself, because he had acted as himself, I started reading these names off, and I was like, wow, like, he really got into acting later in his life, and then I realized he died in 1972, so, um, and, uh, uh, Robinson was also the subject of a 2016 PBS documentary, Jackie Robinson, which was directed by the much-beloved Ken Burns, and features Jamie Foxx doing voiceover as Robinson. 
post-baseball life. Robinson once told future Hall of Fame inductee Hank Aaron that the game of baseball is great, but the greatest thing is what you do after your career is over. Robinson retired from baseball at age 37 on January 5th, 1957. I have to double check something because that is very weird. Oh my God. Okay, guys. Robinson retired from baseball on the same, not the exact same day, but on the date that George Washington Carver died. So George Washington Carver died in on January 5th of 1943, and uh, Robinson retired on January 5th of 1957. That's so weird <clears throat> that, like, two black men sort of, well, two, two prominent black men had significant things come to an end for them on January 5th. That is really weird. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to make of that. Later that year, after he complained of numerous physical ailments, he was diagnosed with diabetes, a disease that also afflicted his brothers. Although Robinson adopted an insulin injection regimen, the state of medicine at the time could not prevent the continued deterioration of Robinson's physical condition from the disease. Oh, dear, that's really a shame. In October 1959, Robinson entered the Greenville Municipal Airport's whites-only waiting room. Airport police asked Robinson to leave, but he refused, as we know he does. At a National Association for the, for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP speech in Greenville, South Carolina, Robinson urged complete freedom and in and encouraged black citizens to vote and to protest their second-class citizenship. <laughs> Ooh, the following January, approximately a thousand people marched on New Year's Day to the airport, which was desegregated shortly thereafter. In his, fought, in his first year of eligibility for the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1962, Robinson encouraged voters to consider only his on-field qualifications rather than his cultural impact on the game. He was elected on the first ballot, becoming the first black player inducted into the Cooperstown Museum. Just in case you didn't know, the Baseball Hall of Fame is in Cooperstown, New York. It's in, like, upstate New York. I think I went there when I was a much younger kid. And uh, as far as I can remember, the end of the the movie, A League of Their Own, I think it takes place in, or, you know, it's supposed to be the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. In 1965, Robinson served as an analyst for ABC's Major League Baseball Game of the Week telecast, the first black person to do so. In 1966, Robinson was hired as general manager for the short-lived Brooklyn Dodgers of the Continental Football League. In 1972, he served as a part-time commentator on Montreal Expo's telecasts. On June 4, 1972... 
The Dodgers retired his uniform number 42 alongside those of Roy Campanella, 39, and Sandy Koufax, 32. From 1957 to 1964, Robinson was the vice president for personnel at Chalk Full of Nuts. He was the first black person to serve as vice president of a major American corporation. Robinson always considered his business career as advancing the cause of colored, uh, Jesus Christ, of black people in, uh, in commerce and industry. I want to address the fact that I almost just said advancing the cause of colored people. I am very sorry. Obviously, I had the words uh, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, like, rattling around in my head. So I apologize for that little slip up. Robinson also chaired the NAACP's Million Dollar Freedom Fund Drive in 1957 and served on the organization's board until 1967. In 1964, he helped found with Harlem businessman Dunbar McLaurin Freedom National Bank, a black-owned and operated commercial bank based in Harlem. He also served as the bank's first chairman of the board. In 1970, Robinson established the Jackie Robinson Construction Company to help build uh, housing for low-income families. How lovely. Robinson was active in politics throughout his post-baseball life. He identified himself as a political independent, although he held conservative opinions on several issues, including the Vietnam War. He once wrote to Martin Luther King Jr. to defend the Johnson administration's military policy. After supporting Richard Nixon in his 1960 presidential race against John F. Kennedy, Robinson later praised Kennedy effusively for his stance on civil rights. Robinson was angered by conservative Republican opposition to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. He became one of six national uh, directors for Nelson Rockefeller's unsuccessful campaign to be nominated as the Republican candidate for the 1964 presidential election. After the party nominated Senator Barry Goldwater of Arizona, instead, Robinson left the party's convention commenting that he now had a better understanding of how it must have felt to be a Jew in Hitler's Germany. He later became special assistant for community affairs when Rockefeller was re-elected governor of New York in 1966. Switching his allegiance to the Democrats, he subsequently supported Hubert Humphrey against Nixon in 1968. Robinson protested against the major league's ongoing lack of minority managers and central uh, office personnel, and he turned down an invitation to appear in an old-timers game at Yankee Stadium in 1969. He made his final public appearance on October 15, 1972, throwing the ceremonial first pitch before Game 2 of the World Series at Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati. He gratefully accepted a plaque honoring the 25th anniversary of his MLB debut, but also commented, I'm going to be tremendously more pleased and more proud when I look at that third base coaching line one day and see a blackface managing in baseball. This which was only fulfilled after Robinson's death following the 1974 season, the Cleveland Indians gave their managerial post to Frank Robinson, no relation to Jackie, a Hall of Fame-bound player who would go on to manage three other teams. Despite the success of these two Robinsons, 
and other black players, the number of African-American players in the MLB has declined since the 1970s. Family life and death. After Robinson's retirement from baseball, his wife, Rachel Robinson, pursued a career in academic nursing. She became a professional assistant at the Yale School of Nursing and Director of Nursing at the Connecticut Mental Health Center. She also served on the board of the Freedom National Bank until it closed in 1990. She and Jackie had three children, Jackie Robinson Jr., uh, who did not live very long, 1946 to 1971. How sad. Oh my gosh, how sad. He died a year before his father. Oh. Oh, that's really sad. Gosh. Sharon Robinson, uh, born in 1950, and David Robinson, born in 1952. Robinson's eldest son, Jackie Robinson Jr., had emotional trouble during his childhood and entered special education at an early age. He enrolled in the Army in search of a disciplined environment, served in the Vietnam War, and was wounded in action on November 19, 1965. After his discharge, he struggled with drug problems. Robinson Jr., eventually completed the treatment program at Daytop Village in Seymour, Connecticut, and became a counselor at the institution. Oh. On June 17, 1971, he was killed in an automobile accident at age 24. The experience with his son's drug addiction turned Robinson Sr. into an avid anti-drug crusader toward the end of his life. Oh, how tragic. Robinson did not long outlive his son. Complications from heart disease and diabetes weakened Robinson and made him almost blind by middle age. On October 24, 1972, Robinson died of a heart attack at his home on 95 Cascade Road in North Stamford, Connecticut. He was 53 years old. Robinson's funeral... <laughs> Robinson's funeral service on October 27, 1972 at Upper Manhattan's Riverside Church in Morningside Heights attracted 2,500 mourners. Many of his former teammates and other former, oh Jesus, and other famous baseball players served as Paul Bears and the Reverend Jesse Jackson gave the eulogy. Tens of thousands of people lined the subsequent procession route to Robinson's interment site at Cypress Hill Cemetery in Brooklyn, New York, where he was buried next to his son Jackie, and mother-in-law, Zelie Ism. 25 years after Robinson's death, the, inter, the Interborough Parkway was renamed the Jackie Robinson Parkway in his memory. This parkway bisects the cemetery in close proximity to Robinson's gravesite. After Robinson's death, his widow founded the Jackie Robinson Foundation, and she remains an officer as of 2020. On April 15, 2008, she announced that in 2010, the foundation would open a museum devoted to Jackie in Lower Manhattan. Robinson's daughter, Sharon, became a midwife, educator, director of educational programming for MLB, and the author of two books about her father. His youngest son, David, who has six children, is a coffee grower and social activist in Tanzania. That's <laughs> incredible. Okay. Wow. Um, now there is a whole big section on awards and recognition. I don't feel as compelled to read that, similar to with the, uh, the George Washington Carver 
episode, I don't feel as drawn to reading that. You know, I really was trying to dig into who Jackie Robinson was, like, let's go through his story, the, you know, breaking down kind of the famous legend of Jackie Robinson. And I really wanted to answer that question. Did he actually break the color line? Because I had probably heard of these other figures, these other men that we read about. And I was a little bit fuzzy on that. And I really feel like, again, we've answered the question. Um, and so if you want to go to the Wikipedia page and look at the awards and recognition, please do so. Um, I feel really like this was a really interesting read for me. I feel like I learned, I mean, I learned so much. Now, of course, with Wikipedia, you know, um, there are probably details that are, not 100% correct, so we have to take everything with, like, maybe a, a little grain of salt that there are things that you might read that could be more accurate. Though I do think, of course, that Wikipedia really does try to obviously, like, present a really good piece of, um, uh, what... You know, they want it to be a, a reliable site for research. So, um, I have to tell you that I deeply enjoyed doing this again. And, um, I'm really interested in where this, uh, kind of interest that I have is going to take me. I really like the idea of kind of doing like myths and legends. Um, but I, I also like the idea of just answering questions that pop into my head. So, um, you know, I think I'm just discovering where things are going to go. I want to thank you so much for listening. And um, I hope that you enjoyed it. I hope that you learned as much as I did. And um, I hope that you'll come back and listen again. Uh, have a great day. And... <laughs> Go check those election results again. (laughs) Bye.